0: And grateful on this day that we get the chance in God's Word to look at a prayer that in many ways I think speaks to what we would pray to be the life of these graduates and the life of all of us who are in Christ together. A kind of charge from the Apostle Paul, but not in the form of a charge as much as in the form of a prayer. A petition, a series of petitions that Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. It teaches us about really what the whole of the Christian life is to be about. And so we're going to turn our attention there to this prayer of the Apostle Paul. We're going to pick up the reading in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14. This is God's Word. For this reason... According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before your word, we ask for your spirit. The same spirit who Paul references in this text of Scripture that would strengthen us and make within our hearts a fitting dwelling place for Christ. It is that spirit that we would ask that would come in power now, would come and illuminate this word to our own hearts, that we might receive the truth of it, implant it, that it might root and that it might fruit. In our lives to your glory, O Christ. Would you come and know the hearts here in this room. And would you now by the Spirit minister to all of us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, was it wasn't that long ago that we actually looked at a section in uh, this very letter where Paul prays. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, you might just glance back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 all the way to verse 23. It's really the long prayer of thanksgiving and intercession that Paul has prayed for the church at Ephesus. And now we come again. We're right at halfway through the book of Ephesians. And we come halfway and and we meet another prayer, a prayer for spiritual strength. It's almost as if Paul can't go very far in his letters without bubbling over into prayer. And that really is what happens here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14. Uh, Properly 14 to 19, then with the benediction of 20 to 21, he bubbles over again in prayer. Now, I wonder if you could describe your prayer life by the language of bubbling over or as a cup overflows. Does it feel More times than not that your prayer life is coming from a place of deficit or coming from a place of abundance. I ask you that because Paul tells us he has a reason for the prayer that he's praying here in Ephesians chapter 3. Notice just how the language begins, for this reason. He has a reason that he's praying. It's the same words that he used back at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3. He's got a purpose for it. And as you think about the purposes for why it is that you pray, I wonder what they often are. Where do your prayers come from? What are the purposes, the reasons behind your prayers? Are they sometimes the difficulties of your life? Do you find that you become fervently in prayer when you're in pain? Or when you're in need? Or when you long... For something in particular? Do you find that your prayer life is particularly vibrant at that point in time? Does it make you wonder, for this reason I pray, I wonder what pain Paul's in. I wonder what he needs. I wonder what challenge he's facing. Because that tends to be, doesn't it, the place where we come from with regards to our prayers, which means that our prayers more times than not, if we're honest, come from places of deficit than places of abundance. Places of need rather than places of overflowing joy and a sense of God's glory. What Paul calls here the riches of God's glory. Well, I'm here to tell you today that Paul's reason for prayer is not a matter of deficit. It's a matter of abundance. Paul here prays out of the richness of what we've been exploring together as a congregation over, well, these last 12 weeks in this uh, letter of Ephesians. He's overflowing with joy and excitement and the thrill of the gospel itself. As he's been speaking to us in Ephesians chapter 1 about the electing grace of God, as he spoke to us about the 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 incredible riches of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. As he's told us about forgiveness and the enduring work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, growing us from one degree of glory to the next. And then most recently in Ephesians 3, in the first section of this chapter, he told us that this gospel is not just a gospel to the Jews, but this is a gospel that goes to the Gentiles. It's a gospel that is for all of the world. In fact, that may be the illusion of this particular reference in verse 15. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Notice not just Jews, but all Gentiles, that in all of heaven and in all of earth, He has named the families of the earth. These incredible riches we've been talking about together as a congregation over these last 12 weeks. And well, the Apostle Paul gets to this point and he just, well, he can't contain himself. He begins to overflow in prayer for the Ephesian church and for us that we might know those truths in greater realization in the days to come. In other words, Paul is letting his theology, issue forth into doxology. He's letting what he knows about God and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus to bubble out of him. His cup overflows with God's grace that he wants more and more the redemption of Christ to take hold of your life and mine. What would it look like if our prayers were more akin to this prayer? Where we weren't just praying for what ails us or the lack of what's in our bank account, or what it is we would want or challenge, or just to make it to the end of the week. But we'd be thinking redemptively and eternally about God's promises because when we begin to pray that way, let me tell you, those are prayers that God is inclined to answer. This is why some of the most bold words that are given to us in the Scriptures have to do with prayer. I mean, Jesus Himself says to us, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we think to ourselves, well... I saw this Bentley coming through the square in downtown Franklin on Friday night. Is the Lord saying to me to pray that I might have a Bentley? Is that what the Lord is praying? Well, we have to, of course, balance that instruction with James who tells us that if we ask selfishly for, to give things on our own desires, that's not necessarily the inclination of the Lord to answer. No, we're told over and over in the Scriptures that as we pray, what begins to actually happen is our hearts begin to be inclined to the things that the Lord Himself wants, to the things that God desires. As we let our theology drive our prayers and our doxology, we begin to actually pray for the things that are akin to God's heart. That's Paul here. So much so that we can say, pray whatever it is you wish, if your heart is inclined to the will of God. And it is done for you. It will be accomplished. Pray until your heart is unto God's heart. The beauty of what Paul gives us here is really a model, isn't it? The kind of hearts we would want to have in the midst of prayer. But let's be honest, when we're praying, it takes us a while to get there. We don't start out there, do we? We need the truth implanted in us. That's really what this prayer is all about. That the truth of redemption would be more deeply implanted in you and in me. That's why Paul prays. I pray that you can even quietly right now as we listen to this message and we ponder these words from Ephesians 3, that you could pray honestly to the Lord, Lord, I would desire more of what you wish and will for your people and for me in particular to be realized in the days to come. That the theology of what you've revealed about who Christ is would drive me to my knees increasingly in prayer to you. Because that's where Paul is, isn't it? He's on his knees. For this reason I bow my knees. Now in Greco-Roman culture, at the time in which Paul is writing, being on your knees was not everybody's favorite posture. It wasn't even the inclination of Aristotle, for instance, as he writes in, in his, his rhetoric book. He tells us that, well, that it is a barbaric practice for a man to go down to his knees. Uh, Plutarch, who's actually a contemporary of Paul as he writes uh, the letter of Ephesians, tells us that it's unbecoming of free men to go to their knees. And what's interesting is over the... The course of church history, however, when you watch the gospel actually take root within a culture, we find that men and women, boys and girls, get comfortable on their knees. We find that the posture of kneeling, the posture of lying prostrate on the ground, realizing our position before the Lord, that when we enter into prayer, we're at His mercy or at his mercy, becomes commonplace in the heart and the life of the believer, in the Christian. Maybe just as an example, a holdover from the, well, from the Christian tradition that has long been a part of English history. You saw this well on display a week ago Saturday at the coronation service, which I know you were all glued to, either online or on television, when, well, Prince Charles finally got a job. He became king, that's right, last Saturday. And and when he did, right, there's this moving moment in the coronation service where Prince William, which is his son, bows before his father. And in the midst of that service, he rehearses these words. I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you and faith and truth. I will bear unto you as your liege man life and limb. So help me God. Now, liege man is not a term that you, I would imagine, you haven't used it in a while. It's not a common term that we use today, but it, it literally it just means to be a vassal. A, a liege man is a vassal under a superior, a, a servant under, under a king. Here is a son. Who comes before a father who, in this moment, is a liegeman coming before a king, and is owing to him all loyalty, all honor, all truth, that of life and limb, I give the entirety of myself to you, and I bow on my knees to do so. That's the posture of prayer, you say. Paul is on his knees before the Lord. He's a man of submission. He's a man in service. To the Lord, he's a man following his Savior. Do you remember it was the Lord Jesus Christ who in the Garden of Gethsemane? On the night of his very betrayal, as he, he can, as it were, see the cross coming. We're told in Luke's account that he kneels and he prays. And you know what he, you know what he prays? He prays as a liege man. He prays, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the heart of prayer, you say. Not my will, but thy will be done. And this is the heart of true prayer, isn't it? The surrender, the resignation of one's own will to the will of the Father, to the will of, will of God, that we desire His will and not our will. Do you know that's the work of prayer? We sometimes think, don't we, that prayer is, a, is an attempt to bend God's will to our wishes. That if we just pray hard enough, if we just pray long enough, if we're just earnest enough, God will go, okay, whatever, I'll give, it, I'll give you what it is that you're after. Do you know what really the work of prayer is? It's the work of bending your will unto God's. It's the other way around. It's where in that throne room, your own heart, so to speak, soars from knees into the heavens. And it's there in the glory of who you know Christ to be, by faith as you see Him, and as the truths of God's Word shapes and forms you more into His likeness, you can say to yourself, my desires need to increase, need to decrease. And your desires, O oh Lord, need to increase. That your will needs to be done, not mine. That increasingly we can ask what God wishes. Wouldn't that be your desire to be free in soul? To be able to say with honesty and integrity, not my will, but your will be done. We can say it, but then it might mean it might mean it might mean some impoverty. It might mean some a diagnosis. It might mean a calling that's of incredible burden upon your life, one that you would never choose on your own. It might mean that you would take up your cross daily and follow him. For the one who pray, not my will, but thy will, went straight to the cross, you see. Paul here, as he prays, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father in whom every family on earth and in heaven is named. He comes as a liege man into prayer, resigning himself to the will of the Lord. And not surprisingly, a man that would be in that posture is a man who's been deeply, deeply drinking in the riches of the gospel. Because not only do we see why he prays, there's a reason, not only do we see how he prays from his knees as a liege man, but we see what he prays in this text, don't we? And that really is the bulk of what he communicates to us today. And we can summarize the content of his prayers, I think, rather simply, just in these four words strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. These are the things that he requests. Strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. Here's what Paul wants for the Ephesian church. Here's what the Lord wants for for us. He wants strength. Notice the way it's written there in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner being. Now now notice he doesn't say, I wish for you to receive the Spirit. They already have received the Spirit. They are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians here In Ephesus, and and we know from Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 3 and other texts in the Scripture that the moment of conversion, when we exercise faith, in that very moment the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today. But Paul here uses the word not receive the Holy Spirit, but he uses the word being strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit. He's praying, in other words, not for the Spirit to be received, but for the Spirit that you've received to be stirred up within you, to be at work within you, for this invigorating power and and, and enlivening power of the Holy Spirit to be yours in increasing measure in the days to come. He wants all of what the Spirit can provide for you To be made available to you. Because here's the reality of the fact. Though the Spirit dwells within you, you don't always, do you, consciously apprehend the reality of His presence. And I think Charles Hodge is right, commenting on this text where he says, Experientially, the reality of the Spirit within the life of the believer comes in degrees. Aren't there particular times where you know that the Spirit is greatly at work in your life, like you are loving others peculiarly like unto Christ? Your, your ability to listen and to speak with, with charity and with grace, to relate to one another in fruitful ways, where you're sacrificing things that are precious to you in order to serve your friend and neighbor. If you're, if you're finding joy in doing those things, I want you to know that's not from you. That's from the Spirit of the living God. And most of the time, these are kind of things where when the opportunity to sacrifice comes our way, we go, I know I need to do this. And we coach ourselves, and we talk ourselves into saying yes to things and praise the Lord when we say yes to good things even when we don't want to do them. That by itself is an evidence of the Lord's kindness. It's richer though, when the Holy Spirit has come and changed your heart to such a degree, that God's commands become your happy choice. That's a different experience. The experiential quality of that grows in degrees. What does the Apostle Paul want? He wants them strengthened with with power. He wants them to have the very real sense of all that the Spirit provides to be made available to them. They need it as a church that's being persecuted. They need it as a church that's experiencing opposition in the first century. They they need it as a church that has just taken on, as it were, the name of Christ. They're now living by virtue of His call. And they are receiving attacks for their faith in Jesus. They need to be strengthened by the power of the Spirit. It's easy to grow weary in doing good. It's easy to question the faith. It's easy to doubt Paul wants them strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit and he wants it for a particular purpose. That's really one of the most beautiful descriptions that we find in the Scriptures, isn't it? That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He desires that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, again, almost in similar fashion, you would say to yourself, isn't Christ dwelling in the hearts of these Ephesian uh, Christians? Doesn't even now the Holy Spirit who dwells in your heart, is He not the Spirit of Christ? Doesn't He dwell within you? Well, yes, indeed He does. But think of Paul's petition. What's he asking? He's asking for more of what you have. More of what you have. You have the Spirit dwelling within you. Be strengthened with the power of the Spirit. You have Christ dwell within you. But don't you want more of His dwellingness inside of you? Of course you do. In fact, Paul uses a very well, a very unique Greek term here to describe dwelling. There's actually two words that would have been primarily available to the Apostle Paul as he's writing. One word for dwell, which means Well, probably like some of you, you're passing through town today. You're you're here. I don't know, maybe for a graduation or something. You're you're here and you're staying at the Holiday Inn. You're at the Marriott in in Cool Springs. And you're going to be there a night or two. You're lodging there. You're you're wayfaring in Franklin. You're going to be heading on uh, here pretty soon. That's one word for dwell. There's another word for dwell. The word that he uses here, which means to take up residence. For this place to be your permanent home, the place where you're, it's oriented to your, to your desires and it's arranged according to your, what, you, what it is that you like. He said, I would love for Christ to come and, of course, not just stay a night or two. I would want him to so come into your heart that your heart becomes his home. Do you know what happens when your heart becomes his home? He begins to do amazing things in your life. He begins to rearrange the furniture, my friends. He begins to put new, different pictures up on the wall than the pictures we're used to thinking about in our hearts when we look into our hearts. He begins to change, in other words, our hearts. He begins to move in to very deeper recesses of our, of our hearts. His desire is that we would be strengthened so much with the power of the Spirit that increasingly Christ would dwell within our hearts. Is not that your desire today? Would you want increasingly for there not to be this gap between what your heart desires and what you know God desires? Would you like to see that gap close? Pray Paul's prayer. His prayers that you be strengthened by the power of the Spirit, that more of Christ might dwell in your heart. So much so that he's having ruling effect. This king has come into your heart, and he's having ruling and lordship effect over all of your desires, all of your thoughts, all of your actions. This is what he longs for. Now, why would he want you to be strengthened by the Spirit and dwelling with Christ in your heart in a more rich way because he wants you to be fashioned after his love. He makes that very clear here in verse 17. Notice how he describes us. If you're a believer in Christ today, notice how he describes you. You're a people. Here's what you need to remember. You're a people who are rooted and grounded in love. You're rooted and grounded in love. But one of those metaphors is, is a plant metaphor, right? Roots that go into the soil. Well, how, what nutrients are coming into your heart, into, into the, the life of you? What nutrients are coming, coming up through the roots of the soil that you're in? Well, according to Paul, the nutrient that's coming up through the roots of the seed that you are, that you've been planted in, is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's the nutrients. What's the foundation? What's gonna give stability to your life? What's gonna make your, your your life one that's that's solid and not insecure and not unstable? It's gonna to have to be grounded in the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. Do you know that one of the first ways in which you know that the Spirit of God is strengthening you is that you sense stability in Christ? Isn't that true? Do you know when you're under trial and you're in tribulation, what's, what's some of the metaphors that the Bible uses? Tossed to and fro, right? Hither and, and yon, pushed this way and that way. You're like a ship without a rudder. You're like a ship lost at, at sea. What, what are metaphors used when you're rooted and grounded in love? On Christ He is our rock and our solid foundation. He is the place in which we stand. Why? Because we know that we're rooted and grounded in His love. We're rooted and grounded in His love. Notice how different this would be if we we actually appropriated the reality of His love as the rooting and grounding of our life. Just imagine for a moment what might be different about your day-to-day experience in, in life. Because some of us in this room, let's, let's be honest, we are rooted and grounded in love spiritually in Christ, but we're not living as if we're rooted and grounded in love. You know what we're living like? We're living like we're rooted and grounded in our job performance. Which means if we didn't get a raise or we didn't get the position, we feel very shaky about our quality and our purposeness and our meaningfulness and our value as a person. Some of us are rooted and grounded in other people's approval. We're the peacemaking type. We're the people-pleasing type. And we're always looking around to see how our approval ratings are going. And, and thus, we kind of live a life that's, you know, I love, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. That's sort of our experience of life. Because really, functionally, we're rooted and grounded in, in things that are going to move and change. Some of us are rooted and grounded in our money. And we live and die by what's in that bank account or what's in that asset column. And we find that our whole lives get tossed to and fro as soon as it gets upset. What would it look like to be rooted and grounded in His love? It would look like strength. It would look like stability. It, it, would, it would look like, it, it would look like a power. That comes not from this world, but from from the Lord. Paul wants you to know that you being, this is true of you. It's not something you have to make happen. Or I'm going to go try today to be rooted and grounded in his love. You are rooted and grounded in his love. You are. He's not asking you to do something. You being rooted, see? You're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is true of who I am. You see, how the Apostle Paul is praying what you already have. You have the Spirit. You have Christ dwelling in your heart. You're rooted in ground in his love. And I pray that you would know it. I pray you would know it. And know how He wants us to know it. Look there in verse 18 and 19 because it's one of the most... If He's praying on His knees, He's definitely soaring to the heavenlies. I mean, look at this language. May have, that you may have the strength. There's the strength that the Spirit gives. What's the strength that the Spirit gives? Notice it's comprehending strength. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. What an amazing statement. You're rooted and you're grounded in love. And when you're rooted and grounded in love and the strength of the Spirit is making a dwelling place for Christ increasingly in your heart, you're going to come into knowledge. You're going to come into comprehension of the surpassing greatness, the height and the length and the depth of the love of God for you in Christ. You're going to keep coming into greater capacity. It's a prayer that is praying for your heart to be so enlarged that you would increasingly come into greater knowledge of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? And John Stott, in his marvelous commentary on Ephesians, suggests this as a way in which to just begin to grasp some of the notions here of these cosmic dimensions of breadth and length and depth and height. He says, We need to understand that the love of God is broad enough to encompass all of mankind, every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what we just read about last week in Ephesians three. But His love is long enough to last for eternity. It does. It's not temporal in the sense that it will it will end with time and this dimension. It's deep enough that it would reach the most degraded sinner. There's no one that is too far down of which the righteous right hand of God can't reach down and save. But it's high enough for the lowest of sinners to be exalted to the highest of heavens. That's the nature of this love. That's the nature of this love. It reminds you, doesn't it, of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Further in and further up into the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's prayer for you. Because he's looking to where it is that you're headed, and where are you headed? Some of you are saying to yourself, "I would love to know where, where am I headed? Where am I going? Where well, you're going to a world of love? That's where you're going. You're going to heaven, the new heavens and the new earth." And you're going there with your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born years and years ago now in Bethlehem. Sent from the Father on a missionary errand. Your salvation. Who lived a a perfect life for you. And and then in His perfections received the charge of, of all of your sin on the cross. Dying that excruciating death, which its excruciation is not even beginning to be compared by its physical quality, but what he experienced on the cross when the Father poured out the cup of wrath for your sin upon him. Where so much so, that son, that liege man, would for the very first time that we read in the Gospels say, Not my Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken? that Jesus took that upon himself for you and it was, it was raised again on the third day that you might be wrapped in his righteousness. You might have the promise of eternal life and today is at the right hand of the Father and even as we worship, he is interceding for you and, and for me. That love in the fullness of its form is what you have in store, which is why this prayer concludes with that little phrase, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, commentators have struggled forever about that phrase. Scholars have struggled forever about this phrase. In fact, if Paul didn't write it, we wouldn't be bold enough to say it. To be filled with all the fullness of of God. Some have suggested that, that Paul is Paul is suggesting that that we will be deified. That the fullness of God, we we will be filled with the fullness of God. We We will be gods. I think they're mistaken. I think that Paul is referencing what he knows to be your future and mine in Christ Jesus. You know how we've been called to be holy as he is holy. We've been called to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. How's it going? You, you know, when you close your eyes in death, there will still be sins to put to death. There's still going to be unrighteousness about you. You're going to need someone to bridge the chasm from where you are to where you need to be. To be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that bridge. For we are told in 1 John chapter 3 that our final estate will be that we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ And we will see Him just as He is. For what? We will be like Him. In all of His righteousness, in all of His love, He will look to us and see a mirror of all that He won for us, charged to our account, robed in the glory of His wonderful righteousness. Do you see the end is not just prayer, my friends. The end is praise from total fullness. Total fullness. When the Apostle Paul prays for you, he prays that your life will end in praise. For the fullness and the perfection of Christ will be yours. Friends, this side of of heaven, you understand, we will... We will only know the reality of this in degrees. But it is the heart of the true believer today that says to himself, that says to herself, to the degree that I can know it, before the day of Christ's return, Lord, grant it. Lord, grant it. More than anything in this life, To be more like you. To be shaped more like you. I'm your liege man. I submit to you. I I vow to you. Come and grant all your strength in the Spirit. Make your dwelling place here, O Christ. Rooted and grounded in love. Give to me the love and the knowledge of that love that surpasses even knowledge itself. Do you know, if you've been loved deeply, and you have if you're in Christ But even if you have been loved deeply in this world, maybe by a husband or a wife, maybe by a mother or a father, you know that there are depths of that love where it's like knowledge and words fail. And that something about the experience of just knowing that love in the person captures the beauty and the wonder of it. I believe that's why in the description that John gives us in 1 John 3, that he doesn't say, when you get to heaven, you'll really know Christ's love then and you'll be able to diagram it. He says, you will see him face to face. And all that you need to know will be known. Hasten that day by God's grace. Father in heaven, we pray that you would prepare us day by day, moment by moment with the strength of your spirit, fitting a dwelling place for Christ in our hearts that we might know increasingly the surpassing nature of your love until the fullness of God is ours in Christ Jesus. Hear this prayer and answer it.